the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined remotely, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, hey. Today's episode is presented by Volkswagen. Whatever your definition of family is, there's an SUVW that suits it. The Western Conference Finals seem to be suiting Anthony Davis and the Lakers quite well, one game in. We are recording this late Friday night, early Saturday morning, whatever you want to call it, shortly after the Lakers pretty much waxed the Nuggets, uh, 126 to 114. It's close to start, second quarter, Lakers start pulling away, foul trouble. Uh, contributed to that, but really the second half wasn't much of a game. I mean, I think the Lakers were up 27 at one point. I mean, it got pretty ridiculous. The 12-point margin doesn't really indicate how out of hand this game got. You, I believe, like me, had the Lakers in six. So we expect this to be somewhat competitive. Do you kind of chalk this one up to maybe Nuggets fatigue, the foul trouble, and it's not really indicative of the series at hand? Or did you see some things that maybe made you reconsider whether the Nuggets can keep this competitive? No, I think it will be competitive. I I don't know that there's ever going to be a point in this series where like the Lakers really sweat and it seems like they're actually going to lose. Be one of those situations where LeBron says, you know, I've been in adverse situations before and this wasn't one of them. But I, I do think that it can and will be competitive. I just think that it's really important, obviously, for the Nuggets to make the Lakers play in the half court. It's like we've said that about every opponent that the Lakers have faced so far, but I don't know that they have had a game in the postseason yet where they got out in transition quite as much as they did in this game. They just ran off of everything. They ran off of live ball turnovers, obviously, but they ran off of misses. They ran off of makes and they got the ball down the floor so fast. And I think that actually contributed a lot to all the fouls. Like there was some ticky tack stuff, It was a tight whistle for sure. And, you know, arguably not a great whistle for the Nuggets. I mean, the Lakers, I think, shot 32 free throws in the first half, which was the third most ever in a playoff game in a first half. So obviously unfortunate for them. And and that kept Jokic on the bench for a a long stretch in the first half. Jamal Murray as well for, I think, like the last four and a half minutes of the second quarter. Both of those guys had three fouls. But I do think a lot of that was the result of the Lakers kind of dictating the pace of this game, imposing their will, and just playing with, honestly, a level of athleticism, speed, and physicality that the Nuggets really struggled to match. And that's something that I do think could be a recurring theme in the series. You know, like, I don't know that the Nuggets are ever going to be able to match that. They can play better than they did. They can do a better job, I think, of keeping the Lakers out of transition, but are they going to be able to match the Lakers when it comes to athleticism, speed, physicality? I don't know. I don't think so. And I mean, I think one thing that was surprising, look, I've been going on all year and all playoffs about the Lakers eventually needing to settle for AD at center and and going to those looks more. And it obviously worked uh, against Houston, you know, the ultimate small ball team. And even in our write-up and our preview for this series, I talked about the fact that like you can still do it against the Nuggets because like the whole point of AD making you matchup proof is that it doesn't matter if the other team is big or small. You can still go with AD at the five and it makes the most sense. But what I thought was surprising and what I think is probably not a great early sign for Denver is like you mentioned that athleticism advantage the Lakers have and their, you know, how they really made a point of getting out and running and getting their transition game going today. 
even when like their bigs bigs were in the floor, like when JaVale McGee and or Dwight Howard was on the court, that did not stop them at all from getting out in transition. And I know like both of those guys can run. It's not like we're talking about plotting big man, but still at this stage in his career, especially like, I don't know how many people really think of Dwight Howard running, you know, fast breaks anymore. But in this game, even he seemed to be like, it definitely seemed to be part of the game plan for the Lakers to run off makes off misses didn't matter whether they're going smaller with AD at the five or whether they're going with more traditional lineups. And the Nuggets were struggling to keep up even when it was Dwight in the game. Like Dwight was kind of outrunning them back and forth. And again, I don't know, maybe that's a little bit of fatigue. You know, the the Nuggets had two days off. The Lakers had five. The Nuggets are playing their 16th game. The Lakers playing the 12th. But you know, the flip side to that is it's not going to get any easier. It's not like the Nuggets are going to suddenly get some sort of rest advantage as the series progresses. They're still playing the same amount of games and the same amount of rest. So I think outside of like the tactical stuff, if there's one thing that would concern me for the Nuggets, it's that the Lakers seem to be able to run against them no matter what lineup they're running out there and i just don't think the nuggets have the athleticism to match that dwight was great yep. um and i like you mentioned i wrote in that preview that i kind of thought they should just sort of play the, the same way that they had played against the rockets and i still kind of think that that's true because i do think that they're at their best with ad playing the five and Look, I mean, I don't think that giving, you know, those token starting minutes to JaVale or maybe they switch. I mean, Dwight started the second half in place of JaVale and maybe he'll start the rest of the series. I'm not too sure. But, you know, it wasn't like they were just surviving with Dwight on the floor. Like he was really good. I thought he was awesome in pick and roll defense. Like he was coming up high and taking away the pull up three from Jamal Murray. And he was able to do that while recovering and taking away the roll. There was one possession in particular where he showed pretty high. And in in a Murray-Jokic pick and roll, Jokic uh, slipping into space. I think it was Danny Green came to tag from the weak side. Murray makes the pass to the wing to Gary Harris. Gary Harris pumps and drives. And, And Dwight, who was like up playing super high in that pick and roll recovers to the rim and swats Gary Harris's layup attempt, like 15 feet out of bounds. He looked bouncy. He looked quick. And there were a couple of times where he managed to kind of sneak behind Jokic on the baseline and got a couple of lobs out of it. A couple of really good passes, uh, one from LeBron and one from Rondo uh, to get him up top. And he, he made a positive impact on the game. And another thing is like when the Lakers were playing big with him and AD on the floor, they were kind of manhandling Denver on the boards. So there are advantages that they can mine there for sure. But I think, you know, the bottom line to me is the Nuggets should have ways to make the Lakers pay for playing that way. I don't think they did that in this game. I think they can do a better job of that, of of sort of making Dwight a negative, particularly at the offensive end. And is that good for them? Like ultimately, you know, for the Rockets, it was like, they forced the Lakers to adjust by essentially mothballing their centers. That didn't prove to be a good thing for the Rockets because the Lakers just went to AD at the five and ran them out of the gym. So whether that's good or not, I guess I'm not sure. I think the good thing is, and this didn't work out for Houston, but it could work out for Denver, is if you can make it untenable for the Lakers to play their centers, they have to rely on other lineup fillers like Rondo and Markeith Morris the fact is those guys have played great, but I don't know if they can keep playing great. Hold so, on, hold on, hold on. Are you? No, no, no. We're not doing this. Are we you are not, once again doubting playoff Rondo? It can't forever. be. It forever. can't be. No, Rondo had another great game. I, I, I believe that's uh, four straight good games, five straight. 
Well, yeah. Four straight? I don't know. Was he... He was really good in, like, games two, three, I guess four of the series against the Rockets. Listen, listen. (laughs) We're not doing this. John Rondo with nine assists and zero turnovers tonight. Man, honestly, the, the there was one play that stood out. Obviously, there was he made some incredible passes. He made that floater over the backboard that like broke my brain. But there was one play in I think the third quarter. It didn't even he missed a layup, so it, it didn't even result in a basket. But he kind of revved up. He got a switch with Jokic on him and revved up. And drove from like just behind the three-point line. And I haven't seen him move that fast in like five years at least. It was it was shocking. Like I, I couldn't believe how fast he got going. And again, he missed a layup, but like that that play kind of popped for me where it really just seemed like I don't know, man. Like I've said it enough already. And maybe hopefully this is the last time we have to talk about this, but it does seem like he has another gear. And that he's getting to it right now. So yeah, congratulations to the playoff Rondo believers, I guess. I think we'll end up having to talk about it again because I'm very confident the Lakers will be in the finals and they're going to be playing for at least another couple of weeks. You know, even if you don't think Rondo can play this well for another however many games in a row, like I still think he'll make some positive contributions along the way. So like, I just think at some point, between now and the end of the postseason, we probably will have to talk about Rondo again. Um, you know, not sarcastically either. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm excited for that, I guess. <laughs> I also want to shout out the Lakers defense, which I thought was quite good in this game. And Jokic had like a real, Jokic and Murray both actually had really nice first quarters. And I think the Nuggets dropped, what, 38 in the first quarter. And then after that, the Lakers defense really tightened up, I thought. And they were switching the Murray Jokic pick and roll a lot more than I expected them to. And the Nuggets, I think, were attacking the back end of that switch more so than the front end. Like they're looking for Jokic mismatches on the smalls that are switching onto him more so than Murray is looking to like attack Anthony Davis on a switch, for instance, or even Dwight Howard on a switch. Uh, I think, you know, th- they're seeing. It's like Alex Caruso or Rondo or uh, Danny Green is switching on to Jokic and they're immediately looking and trying to, to find him and get him the ball in the post. And a couple of times that worked out really well. Either he scored or got fouled or the Lakers brought a double team and he was able to find a shooter or a cutter out of the post. But I really thought the Lakers did a good job of recovering in those scenarios. And sometimes that was just like they managed to kind of scram the matchup out and get AD back onto Jokic. Sometimes that was the result of Denver not moving fast enough in order to attack the mismatch that they got. But I've just, I've been really impressed with this Lakers defense. Like they've been fantastic pretty much all postseason. And I thought they did a, a good job of kind of taking away what the Nuggets wanted to do in this game. All year, really. They, they've been good all year on that end of the court. The one thing in the playoffs is like they've started slow in series and then it seems like Vogel and, you know, having a mind like LeBron leading the ship probably doesn't hurt, but it just seems like they've kind of figured things out as series progress. And by the middle of a series, it really seems like they've got the opponent figured out. Obviously, this is the first of the three series they played this year where they've won game one, but they definitely just seemed 
I don't know if prepared is the right word, but they just definitely seem to have the Nuggets a little more figured out defensively to start this series than they have in the last two series. And the in, the funny thing is, is you know you mentioned it, the Nuggets had 38 points in the first quarter, so maybe that was maybe the first quarter of Game One tonight was the equivalent of their Game One in the previous two series, where it's like they figured something out after that. You know, LeBron talked about the feeling out game against Houston. Um, with the way they play. Maybe tonight's first quarter was like a feeling out quarter for them because after that, it really did seem like they kind of figured some things out and just locked the Nuggets down. And again, I do think a little bit of that was probably the foul trouble and the Nuggets going large stretches without Jokic or Murray on the court. Dwight like frustrated the hell out of Jokic. Yeah, tagged him with two offensive fouls. Yeah, and almost immediately, like after he checked in the game, it's not like it took a while to rev him up. It was like forty-five seconds into Dwight's appearance, and Jokic was frustrated as hell. Yeah, no, I think Dwight deserves a lot of credit, especially after sitting out literally the entire Rocket series. For him to come in after kind of being on the shelf for that long, um, he obviously stayed ready and he came in ready to play. Like that was a, a, an impressive performance for sure. I don't know if he'll be that good again, um, and I do think there. are probably some things that the Nuggets can figure out as far as ways to exploit him. But but he played great. I think, you know, a big thing to me has been just how good the Lakers have been at limiting opponents' three-point attempts. Like, I, I know, I think the Rockets attempted something like 41 per game in the second round, which seems like a ton. Not but for, the, for Rockets. the Rockets, like, that's well below their average. And... In this one, the Nuggets only got 26 threes off. And given, you know, the the amount of attention that Jokic is getting on the block, for them to only get 26 threes is pretty incredible. And the Lakers managed that because, look, AD covers an enormous amount of ground. He is incredibly long. Um, and, and they have a lot of guys who just kind of help and stunt and recover really well. And they've done a great job getting out to shooters and running them off the line. And I think, you know, the bet that they're going to make in this series is... Look, we're gonna they're gonna key in on Murray and Jokic, and it's not like the possession is just gonna end once they key in on those guys. Like they are going to recover like hell and close out to the three point line, and whatever shots they give up from out there, they're gonna make them difficult, and they're gonna live with you know giving up corner threes to Jeremy Grant uh, and even Gary Harris. But the fact that you know with that game plan, they still limited the Nuggets to 26 three-point attempts is, I think, a really good sign for them. The Lakers have had a couple hiccups in the playoffs, but for the most part, I just don't think LeBron will allow this team to take their foot off the gas, you know? And again, I'm not saying the Nuggets don't have a shot to make this somewhat competitive, but I think the jokes about the Nuggets digging those 15-point holes or 16-point holes and, and then kind of waking up don't really carry over to this series because I just don't think... I don't think LeBron will allow the Lakers to coast with a 13-point lead in this series or, or in this postseason, really. So, yeah, I mean, the Nuggets can't afford to dig those kinds of holes. And that's actually why I thought, you know, I don't even think it was interesting. I just think it was wrong that when Jokic picked up his third foul with more than seven minutes left in the second quarter, Mike Malone took him off the court, put him on the bench, and you got... Chris Weber and Reggie Miller talking about how they were coaching the team. They'd sit him for the rest of the half, which is what Mike Malone did. Now, in fairness to Malone and the Nuggets, Denver actually won those minutes, those seven minutes without him. They were down 13 when he left the court. They went into halftime down 11. Some of that time was even without Murray on the court as well. But my counter to that would be like, okay, you survived those minutes without your best player and for some of it, your best two players. What's to say you couldn't have won those minutes by more if those guys were on the court? So 
I just don't like that approach there when you're the inferior team. This entire series for you is an uphill battle. You're already starting to lose the rope. You're down double digits. It's like, okay, he's got his third foul. Is him picking up potentially his fourth foul in the second quarter more damaging to you than having to play without him already? By t- like, we've had this discussion before. We're not, you know, breaking any news here, but I just didn't like that approach. I just thought it was way too conservative an approach for the coach of a team that needs to be more creative than that in this series. Yeah, I mean, look, it's as simple as this. Like, people will argue with you about this and... I'm not going to say that I know what the right answer is, but what I feel is all these minutes are created equal for the most part. Even though it seems like the end of game minutes are more important, I think that's kind of an illusion. If you pull a guy off the floor when you would ordinarily be playing him just because he's in foul trouble, you're just artificially suppressing his minutes. Like if he gets to six fouls, he gets to six fouls. But most often what happens is he doesn't get to six fouls and he plays fewer minutes than he would have otherwise if you let him get to six fouls because you decided to take him out of the game. And the goal, the goal should always be just play your best players as many minutes as you possibly can. And there is no situation in which pulling a guy with foul trouble accomplishes that goal. But there are many situations, in fact, most of them, in which pulling him with fouls has the opposite effect. He plays less minutes than he would otherwise. So I'm not a fan of it. I do think just, you know, because of how tight the whistle was in that first half and the fact that like these guys have been playing so many minutes and are probably a little bit burned out, then that's not the worst time to maybe get them some rest. So I kind of understand it. And I don't know that it would have made much of a difference in this game anyway. I mean, I agree with your point that all minutes are equal. Like at the end of the day, a fourth quarter crunch time minute isn't actually more important in the grand scheme of a game than the first two minutes of a game. The only thing that changes is I think when you're in the game and playing it, it feels different. And so I do think better players and players that whatever you want to call it, whether you want to call it a clutch gene, whether it's just mental fortitude, I think the players that are made for it, as Chris Paul would say, do perform better in those situations because they are mentally stronger, more skilled, whatever the case may be. So I think the difference, you know, in a crunch time minute versus a quote unquote meaningless first half minute is more so how players react to those minutes. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the value of those minutes, there's no difference. It's, it's the exact same thing as like the closer in baseball. You know what I mean? Like, right. It's in theory would make sense to have that guy pitch the first inning rather than the ninth. Cause then you know that he's going to face the top of the order. Right. Whereas, you know, the ninth inning, like it seems like it's more important because it's the last yeah. inning of the game. And technically like it is higher leverage because if it's a one run game in the ninth inning, then if you give up a run or two runs, like the game is literally over. Right. But kind of in a vacuum, it's like, well, an inning is just an inning. Still three outs. You're still trying to get three outs. Yeah, but I can see it from both sides because like you want to have a a closer who is confident and calm in that moment, go in and deal with a situation where you could potentially win or lose the game based on what happens with like the next three or four batters and disposition can factor into that as much as anything. So I, I can see it from that side as well, but I just for the most part think that it's a mistake to artificially suppress your best player's minutes. That's that's my feeling. Yep, I agree. And that's why, um, like I said, I don't I I doubt it makes a difference in this game. But I know a lot of people were kind of defending the decision by saying, well, look, they ended up winning those minutes without him by one point or two points, whatever it was. And my counter to that is just like, okay, but I mean, statistically, you probably have a better chance of winning those minutes by more if your best players are on the court. Like that, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And it's it's worth pointing out, like, 
Jokic and Murray were pretty good in this yeah. game. Like they they scored forty two points combined on on thirty one shooting possessions. So that's pretty good. Uh, I think you know maybe the stat that jumps out to me most here is that Jokic only had two assists. So they were able to limit him as a playmaker. I also think a lot of it has to do with the Nuggets just missing shots. Yeah, like they missed some pretty clean looks from three. And um, I think a lot of that is also the way the, the Lakers, as you had already mentioned, defended the perimeter and were able to recover out to guys, right? Like, I, I don't know how much of it is necessarily they took Jokic out of his playmaking game as it was that they just did a good job recovering to the guys he usually makes plays for. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both and also the fact that the Nuggets just kind of missed some good looks. Um, but that's, so like, they got to clean some stuff up because they turned the ball over too much, they fouled too much, and they let the Lakers get out and run too much. So at least two of those things need to be better. Uh, and I think at some point they will be. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's going to be enough for them to win this series, but I do think it'll be enough for them to win a couple of games. It will be a lot harder for the Nuggets to win a couple of games if Anthony Davis is going to play like this for the rest of the series. Because holy hell, he was magnificent. He was virtually unguardable. This was Anthony Davis at his best. I mean, you mentioned the ground he was covering on the defensive end. He was able to do that and and kind of carry that defensive burden and cover that ground um, and then come back on the offensive end and finish with 37 points on 12 of 21 shooting. He made a three. He got to the free throw line 15 times. He had four assists, grabbed three offensive rebounds. Just a pretty sparkling two-way performance from Anthony Davis. And I think he was the best player on the court. You know, LeBron LeBron was great. Um, Jokic and Murray, when they were out there, were fine. But I think Anthony Davis was, without question, the best player on the court in game one. The Nuggets, like, don't have a great answer for him, right? And that's the thing that's just not going to change. And, I, and that kind of ties into what we were saying just about the sort of speed and athleticism and physicality advantage that the Lakers have. Like a lot of that is just AD. And I don't know. I mean, what's the Nuggets' best option for guarding him? Like, is it Grant? Is it Millsap? Is it Torrey Craig? Is it Jokic? Like, it's a kind of a series of imperfect options. And whether it was Davis beating them down the floor, um, just beating them into space, with the face-up game, honestly, like he hit a bunch of jumpers in this one, which is kind of becoming a theme. Like he's just gotten really, really comfortable getting to that face-up game, you know, in, in the triple threat position and being able to just hit shots in guys' faces uh, if he's not driving to the basket or drawing fouls. Like he got to the line 15 times. And again, like yeah, it was a tight whistle, but I, I don't think the Nuggets are going to be able to keep him off the line in this series. Like he just kind of has some form of advantage over any defender that they can send at him, whether it's a size advantage or a quickness advantage. And I I mean, that's kind of Anthony Davis in a nutshell, but the Nuggets really, really don't have anybody to throw at him. So I don't know if he's going to go for 37 and 10 every night, but he's going to have a big series. And I think, I don't know, I guess I'd have to go back and like kind of rewatch some of the tape, but did it seem to you like they weren't really aggressive enough with the double teams? Because I feel like maybe that's the that's the way that you can sort of throw him off rhythm is just show him extra bodies. 
And I don't know that the Nuggets really did a good enough job of that. It was surprising to me too, because like we've seen him struggle with double teams as recently as like a week and a half ago. Like he he still does not handle double teams very well. Yeah, the Nuggets didn't bring them um, fast enough and they weren't aggressive enough with them. Like there was plenty of times in the second half. And I don't know, maybe it was like a mental fatigue thing from the Nuggets standpoint. Like maybe they had already mentally conceded this game, but Davis had way too much time. He'd catch the ball on the block and like start making a move and like leaning uh, leaning back like he was going to fade away or hit a turnaround jumper and the doubles like starting to come into the frame on the instant replay while he's already like starting to elevate for the jumper it was coming too late just wasn't aggressive enough and i'm you know i highly doubt that was the game plan so again just kind of ties back to like whether it was physical fatigue or at that point in the game you know even the nuggets who have come back so many times this postseason maybe we're playing against a bit of mental fatigue and already starting to think about game two it doesn't make sense otherwise. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, if, again, like I, I have to go back and rewatch and, and see if there are any kind of like specific spots or instances of, of times, like whether it's the direction they're bringing the doubles from, or like you said, the, the timing of it, it just seemed like they let him get a little bit too comfortable. But again, it's, they just like don't really have a ton of great options. So it is going to have to be a team effort uh, because individually they, I, they, you know, they don't have the horses. That goes to the fouling as well, right? You mentioned they're going to have a hard time keeping them off the line because of those advantages. Look, the Nuggets didn't get a great whistle in this game. The one thing I want to point out is like, this is not a Lakers thing. This is not a like, oh, I, I, even like pretty res- people I respect in the industry, okay? I'm not just talking about wacky fans. We're alluding to like the Lakers effect on officiating tonight. And I just think that's BS. First of all, if we're being honest, the officiating has been pretty bad for the last few weeks in the playoffs in general. Like we've seen some pretty glaring mistakes. I don't think it was Lakers slanted. I think it was not a great night for a Scott Foster led crew. Surprise, surprise. And I think there are very real physical reasons why the Nuggets will have a hard time keeping the Lakers off the line. And I think those things, you know, combined make it tough for the Nuggets. But anyone who's watching this game and thinking that the foul discrepancy was anything mischievous or malicious or had malintent like no it was just not a great night for the officials and also the lakers are stronger and faster than the nuggets and so (laughs) you you asked me if i would change my prediction would you it seems silly to say yes but yes (laughs) i think i think i'd go from lakers and six to lakers and five i wouldn't i'm not saying it's gonna be a sweep i i have I, the Nuggets have earned too much of my respect in this playoff run for me to think they're going to completely roll over. I think they'll grab a game. But, you know, I even said in my preview that I thought this series would be competitive early and that the Lakers would kind of slowly figure it out and, and pull away as the series went on. The fact that game one was such a shit kicking kind of changes my mind. And- but the Nuggets also have a habit of getting shit kicked early in series and then right. figuring it out. So I guess we'll see. But I do think, you know, the Lakers have the feel of a team that's peaking at the right time. They're undoubtedly playing their best basketball of the bubble, maybe their best basketball of the whole season these last couple of weeks. So they're going to be tough to beat for anybody. Another team peaking at the right time is uh, your, I'm sorry, my Miami Heat. (laughs) You talked about that Rondo uh, over the backboard shot breaking your brain. Uh, What the Heat are doing, I know from our text correspondence, is completely melting your brain and it's also melting the Boston Celtics and fracturing that team because after blowing another winnable game in this series and falling behind 2-0 to the Miami Heat the Celtics uh, ended up with a very contentious post-game locker room where things were thrown Marcus Smart was yelling at people from the wash 
bathroom or maybe on the toilet. I don't know. Uh, Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart had to be separated. Brad Stevens had to convene a meeting between Smart, Brown, Jason Tatum, and Kemba Walker at the team hotel after. And on the flip side to that, the Heat's biggest concern right now is whether Jimmy Butler's Big Face Coffee is open that day or not. So two teams going in very different directions right now. I can see the disdain in your face that you have to talk about the Miami Heat again on a same episode where I've asked you about playoff Rondo again. So so talk to me. What have you seen Look, from these two games? How, how how has this gone so wrong for Boston? Because we both agree Boston probably should have won both games. Yeah, no, it's not disdain. It's it's honestly just disbelief on my part because I didn't expect this. I, I I'm not gonna say I don't know how they're doing this because I've watched the games and I do know how they're doing it. It's just really impressive uh, and really surprising to me because I actually do think that Boston is the more talented team. And there, there are still these kind of structural flaws with Miami that make me doubt them, but they've played so goddamn well. And it's just, you know, there's some intangible stuff that we've talked about, like their kind of grit and resilience and like they just play super smart and they execute really, really well. They're well coached, but on a, a sort of more tangible level, I think they've done a really good job of just kind of throwing the Celtics out of rhythm. Obviously, a big part of that was the zone that they played. And and the Celtics had a pretty decent time of it in game one against the zone. 16 points on 16 possessions, which in the half court is perfectly fine. But in game two, it completely flummoxed them. And they were down to 25 points on 32 possessions, which 32 zone possessions is a lot. Uh, and the Heat kept going back to it because it kept working. And the thing is, like, there are ways to bust the zone. Obviously, it's incumbent on beating the rotations with passes and also just like getting into the middle of it. But like when you watch the heat and the defense, like the zone defense is really locked in and they're moving on a string and the ball, no matter how quickly it's swinging around, just can't seem to beat the rotations. It looks really daunting. And the Celtics have such a hard time puncturing that, especially in the second half. And I'm sure like they will come with some ready-made counters in game three, if they don't, like, I don't know what they're going to do. But to me, I mean, one of the counters that they tried was having Marcus Smart be the guy who flashed to the nail and operated from the middle of the zone. And that didn't really work at all. Part of that was because, I mean, like a couple times Smart just like looked at the rim, thought about shooting the mid-range jumper and then passed out of it. But it's just, to me, it's like a little strange to use him as the guy who's operating from the middle. Like he is a good passer, but he also can't see over the defense. And he's also like one of the Celtics better and more willing three-point shooters. So I think maybe you want to like station him on the perimeter as a shooting threat and have somebody like Tice or Grant Williams operating in the middle of that zone because those guys aren't really three-point threats, but they are tall enough to see over the D. They're pretty good passers. I don't know. I didn't really get the the smart thing, having him operate in the middle. And I don't know. So that was one thing. Another thing is like the Celtics just like can't stop Goran Dragic. He just, he's just picking them apart. And and he is looking super explosive off the bounce. I mean. Goran Dragic is playing some of the best basketball of his career right now. A hundred percent. Like you could argue maybe the best. I'm not even kidding. And I mean, like last series we saw Daniel Tice look pretty comfortable switching out on the perimeter. Did a, Pretty damn good job staying in front of Kyle Lowry and Fred Van Vliet, who admittedly, like, those are two very smart, 
guileful point guards who can find their way to advantages, even if they aren't, you know, the quickest guys in the world. But like Tice has not been able to stay in front of Dragic on switches. Dragic has absolutely obliterated him. And he's just like getting into the middle of the floor at will. And when the Celtics are forcing him to the sideline, because they don't want him to get in the middle, he's just turning the corner and beating them to the side and getting to the basket anyway and collapsing the defense that way and spraying passes out to the perimeter. Like they, they just don't, seem to have an answer for him. And then it's like Jimmy Butler is there kind of chilling for like 44 minutes. And then in the last four minutes of game two, had like four deflections, three steals, hit a layup and got to the free throw line, like had a pick and roll assist to Bam Adebayo. He seems to have really gotten a good feel for like how to save himself for the end of the game. And... It's like that. that's kind of like become the heat formula is just keep things close and then let Jimmy take over the game at both ends of the floor down the stretch. Not unlike OKC's clutch time uh, success this season with Chris Paul. Now different, obviously, because Chris Paul controls the game in different ways as a point god, but similar in the sense that we've heard the Thunder talk about that this season, right? Like they think if they're just in a close game, they think they're going to win it because you put the ball in Chris Paul's hands and got a good chance to do it. And I feel like the, the Heat clearly have the same confidence in Jimmy Butler because as you mentioned, like that's been the script so far. And in this series, especially like statistically, Jimmy Butler hasn't had a great first couple of games. He's been fine, but the numbers don't pop off the page. And in both those games, it feels like, you know, these teams are playing very competitive games that the Celtics had the edge in. And in both those games, Jimmy Butler hits big shots, comes up with deflections, comes up with steals, like finds a cut, like whatever the, de- whatever needs to be done in those moments, he's doing them. And so for the Celtics, like I, I, I'd be really demoralized because I think, again, I think for the bulk of 101 minutes, I think the Celtics have been the better team and they've, they played pretty hard for those 101 minutes after going seven games at the Raptors and they've come out with nothing so far because of Jimmy Butler's exploits, because Goran Dragic has turned back the clock and then some Bam has been fantastic. Like it, I think Bam's been the best player in the series. Yeah, he has. Um, His playmaking has been unreal. Um, You you know, you mentioned like how daunting that heat zone is and their ability to just kind of move on a string and the ball isn't even able to pass. Usually that's the thing. You move the ball, you beat it, but even that isn't able to beat it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the impact Bam Adebayo has oftentimes at the back of it or at the center of it. Like how, how do you beat that zone with Bam Adebayo doing what he does? I don't know what the Celtics do to beat it. I feel like logically the Celtics have to win the next game. And I don't mean that from their perspective, like, duh, they have to win. They can't go down three, nothing. I mean, like basketball wise, logically, like, I feel like if I had to put money on it, I'd say, no, like the Boston's obviously going to win this game. The Heat aren't going up three, nothing on the Celtics. They're already 10 and one in these playoffs. Like this is ridiculous. But then again, it's like, I don't know. Do, do I think the Celtics will blow the heat out? Probably not. The heat are too grimy. So you're yeah, going to end up in, and then if it is a close game again, like, I don't know, I'm not betting against Jimmy Butler just because they're already up to nothing. Like, the Celtics can do a lot of stuff better. And obviously they lost that game too in the second quarter when they got outscored 37 to 17. So they scored 17 points. Obviously their offense wasn't functioning particularly well in that quarter. A lot of that had to do with Miami's zone. But to give up 37 points, and I mean, you can go back and watch that quarter and it's just a parade of Bam out of bio dunks. Uh, And most of them are just coming out of the pick and roll. And it's not super complex pick and roll action like a lot of it's pretty simple it's just they're going after Kemba Walker 
he's getting hung up on screens and he is behind every play. And there, whether it's miscommunication or just, you know, the fact that Kemba's kind of getting wiped out on some of these screens makes it difficult. But like there's some of them where it's like Tice or in a couple of cases, Cantor, because Cantor was in for a stretch during that run. They're really selling out hard and committing to the ball handler and Kemba isn't recovering in time to get back to the role man. So it's like the big man is treating it almost as a switch, but Kemba's still trying to chase over the top and nobody is coming to tag from the weak side because, you know, the strong side corner is empty and in the weak side corner is Duncan Robinson. So you can't really bring help from there. And it, if, like that's the alignment that the Heat are in. Like the Celtics need to recognize that and either, you know, bring an extra rotation from the top or they need to play that pick and roll differently. It needs to be a switch or Kemba just needs to do a better job of fighting through those screens. Like, or, you know, the big man just takes away the role essentially and says, okay, here, you know, Tyler Hero have like a floater or a mid-range jumper. Every instinct that they had guarding those pick and rolls in the third quarter was wrong. Like it was very poor pick and roll defense. They they went to Grant Williams at the five in the fourth quarter and just started switching everything and had a lot of success doing that, which is basically exactly what Draymond Green. Told I, them I was to just going to say Dray- Draymond Green's idea is start Grant Williams and switch everything. And like they've been able to do that at points with Tice because Tice is a pretty good switch guy, but with Dragic and to a lesser extent Hero, he hasn't been able to do that in this series. Those guys have really taken advantage of him in space. I, I think the Celtics can definitely be better there there have been a lot of mental mistakes and times when they've shot themselves in the foot I think Jason Tatum has been awesome for the most part but late in games his shot selection hasn't been great and you know it's kind of interesting to compare the way him and Butler approach the end of games because Tatum really does fall back on his shot making kind of to his detriment and like the fact that Butler doesn't really have that same level of shot making almost sometimes seems to serve him well because he's just like looking to attack the basket and even though the Celtics know that that's what he's trying to do he has still managed to get himself kind of going downhill he's just Um, too strong to be quite honest like who the Celtics have some length but other than a guy like Tice you know who's undersized from a height perspective but actually a very strong defender like I, no one on that team is stopping a Jimmy Butler drive. I think you know, Marcus Smart is probably their best bet. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, and, you, you and, know, I mentioned it game one, the, the game winning drive by Butler. Like Tatum bounced off him on that drive, you know, and Tatum's not a weak guy. Like, yeah, well, Smart Smart spent a good amount of time on him and, and Tatum, I think, has done a fine job. It's just like there was a, a very similar drive that he had in crunch time in game two when uh, Tatum was guarding him. And they were running, he was running pick and roll with Bam. Bam came up to set the screen and Jimmy just like rejected the screen, crossed over to his right, got to the basket, finished over basically Tatum and Tice. And it's like, that's just a great play. There's, you kind of just have to tip your cat. And the same thing with Dragic, who hit two nasty step back jumpers, including that three, like at the shot clock buzzer over Tice to put the heat up five. It's like, got to tip your cat, man. The heat are playing unbelievably well. And he almost lost the ball there. Yeah, Dragic yeah. almost lost the ball in like a behind the back dribble, or maybe he just made it look like it was a behind the back dribble the whole time because he was yeah. about to lose the ball and then just casually step back into a three. But it's kind of been that kind of run for the Heat. And the one thing I was going to ask you is like, remember last year I mentioned throughout that playoff run that one of the things that gave me almost irrational confidence in the 2019 Raptors is 
they had this kind of like, maybe not team of destiny thing about them, but other than Kawhi who had won a title in green, like they had, whether it was Lowry, Gasol, Abaka, they had these like veterans that just had this like, call it a look in their eye, call it things bouncing their way literally, but it just kind of seemed like these guys would recognize the moment, see the opportunity before them, and like they're just not going to let anyone stop them. I'm, like, I'm kind of getting that vibe from the Heat and, and from Butler especially, but even Drogic. I don't know, maybe maybe it's these guys like sensing that this might be their one true shot because say what you will about the Heat, you know, being players in 2021 and, and this and that. Like, as we've discussed many times, sometimes your first chance is ends up being your best chance or your last chance. And for, you know, Jimmy, you know, isn't a spring chicken. Who knows what his status is going to be in a couple of years. Dragic, we're talking about him turning back the clock. Like, who knows what he's going to be with this team in 2021. It really does seem like these guys just kind of maybe sense the moment a little more than the Celtics do. And maybe that's unfair because the Celtics all year have executed really well and, and been very locked in. But, you know, that third quarter was very out of character for the Celtics. And those are the kinds of quarters, though, and the kinds of short lapses that can bite you and completely derail a potential finals run or title run because the margins for error are that small and the heat really haven't had one of those lapses that have derailed them right and and i don't know if that's maybe just luck and a small sample size but i think a lot of it might be just they're so locked in right now because butler especially but even Dragic, crowder you know who like it just seems like they've kind of like captured something and bottled something and they just refuse to be shook right now yeah i think there's definitely something to be said for not beating yourself right and the heat absolutely have not beat themselves really at any point in the playoffs aside from I guess like that game four against Milwaukee when they took their foot off the gas maybe a little bit but yeah I mean like the like Crowder has been unbelievable I can't believe how well he shot the ball it's crazy Hero has really impressed me like showing some pretty advanced playmaking chops that I don't think he was really showing early in the season they're just looking like a pretty well-rounded team right now and I'll say this like if if I had to pick I'm still not picking them to win the title at this point but Strong 2011 Mavericks vibes about yep. this team. And even the their kind of run through the playoffs is starting to feel that way, right? Like the way the Mavs swept that like two-time defending champion Lakers team. And obviously that's not the Bucks, but like the Bucks were like this face. <laughs> two-time defending regular season <laughs> champion Milwaukee Bucks. There you go. There you go. With the now two-time reigning MVP in Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, but they, you know, basically gentlemen sweep the Bucks. And then they're going up against, you know, this kind of young up and coming team, which is what the Mavericks saw in the Thunder that were favored to win the series and kind of taking them to the woodshed. And they're doing it in like a very similar way where like no lead is safe against them. Like they can overcome seemingly anything. They're devastating in crunch time. And it's starting to feel a little bit similar to that run. And especially, I mean, Butler is obviously not on Dirk's level, but he is a guy who's been a star in the league for a long time. And, you know, the fact that he hasn't really had a ton of playoff success has always been sort of held against him, even though it's very rarely been his fault. And, you know, he does seem to be kind of like on uh, a mission, you know, and like seeking whether it's redemption or, you know, a chance to finally get a taste of glory. Like he is playing like a guy who knows what he has to do and believes that he can do it. So I, I've definitely like I've changed my I've had to change my tune on Miami. Obviously, they're two wins from the finals. So I don't think I can keep sitting here saying that I don't believe in them. But I do think, you know, for all that, the Celtics should have won both games one and two. 
And that should tell you something about how good the Celtics are. You know, the fact that we're, we're pointing to all this stuff that the Heat are doing uh, that's been so impressive. And yet, like, the Celtics have been right there, both games, leading. They've been up by five points with five minutes left in both games. You know, they were up by as many as 17 points in game two. So uh, they should very much still believe that they can come back and win this series. I believe that they can still come back and win this series because that's a, a hell of a talented team. They got some stuff to clean up, uh, and they certainly have to figure out what to do about that heat zone, but it's not over for them by any means. One thing that might help against that heat zone, just because it's yet another offensive force shooter and playmaker, is Gordon Hayward's potential return. He might be back for game three. Hayward's availability was my X factor in this series. I did not think it would be 2 nothing Miami by the time he got back, but um, you know, we talked so much about how hard it is to handle Boston's abundance of shot creation and specifically like the type of shot creation and individual creation that are so um, paramount in the playoffs, right? And and the ability to kind of like attack weak spots and defenses. We saw how hard that was even for that great Raptors defense to overcome, right? And that was with three of those guys. And then you add in a Gordon Hayward who was pretty damn good this year, averaged over 17 points a game on very efficient shooting, uh, more than four assists a game. Like this guy is an impact offensive player. And I think adding him to the mix, again, he's got some playmaking chops that can help bust the zone. I'm not saying it's going to be the difference between whether they, you know, solve that heat zone or not, but it definitely helps. And, um, you know, in a series that I still think should be pretty competitive, Hayward's a good enough player that I think can tilt the balance a little bit. I know, obviously, you know, we got to question the rust factor. Him coming back, he had to quarantine for a bit and like everything. But, you know, at this point, the Celtics need anything they can get. And even a rusty Gordon Hayward, you know, at the level he was at this year, still has to be a welcome sight for them. Yeah. I mean, again, it'll totally depend on what he looks like when he gets back. It, it hasn't proven to be as big of a loss as i expected it to be in part because i think in part because smart's been great in part because wanamaker has been really good like he's played way better than i could have foreseen so i don't necessarily know that you know whoever's minutes hayward is going to wind up taking are guys that he's going to be able to outperform necessarily given you know the injury that he's coming off of so i don't know that that necessarily moves the needle but I do agree, like, especially if he's the guy who is flashing in the nail and operating in the middle of that zone. I don't think he's going to be afraid to take the free throw line jumper or maybe even put the ball on the floor and take advantage of some of the space that the Heat, you know, afford you when you catch the ball in the middle. And obviously, you know, at six foot eight, like he's the kind of guy who can see over the defense and make passes from that position. So maybe he can be a zone buster for them. Regardless, at his best, he's a really good player. So if he's at his best, then he should definitely help. Well, the absolute best player this season, uh, as voted by the media for the second year in a row, wasn't unfortunately able to help his team as much as he wanted to in the playoffs, but he still was named MVP again. That's Giannis Antetokounmpo. Before we wrap this episode, I mean, we both picked him to win MVP. It's not surprising. It's a regular season award. We know that. So playoff struggles can't and shouldn't be held against him there. Do you have any thoughts on it? Or maybe do you have any thoughts on his comments that every single person in the basketball world is reading too much into? Ernie Johnson in the um, post-award interview asked him about his future in Milwaukee. And on one hand, he said, if everyone's on the same page about wanting to win a championship, he wants to be in Milwaukee 15 years. But at another time, he also talked about 
you know, his two agents, because he's got one in Greece and one in North America, uh, how he trusts them to put him in the best situation, whether it's with the Bucks or another team. So do you have any thoughts one way or the other on Giannis now being a two-time reigning MVP or his future at all? As to the comments, I mean, it doesn't mean anything. Like, none of None of this stuff means anything until it actually comes time to put pen to paper. I think he'll say all the right things because he always says all the right things. You know, maybe he'll put something real behind those words and maybe he won't. And I don't think they should be held against him, you know, one way or another. It's just, this is what you do. Like you play the public relations game. And like, as long as he's a Milwaukee buck, he, I don't think he's going to say anything that makes it seem like he doesn't want to be a Milwaukee buck, nor should he. I think, you know, he's handling himself like a professional. And if he ultimately decides to stay, great. If he ultimately decides to leave, great. You know, he'll make the decision that he feels like is best for him and his career. And the way things are going, I think we both think that probably that is going to mean leaving. But I think, you know, if he wants to put down roots and decides that he feels like he can make the Milwaukee Bucks a championship team, then I will wholeheartedly believe him and believe in him because I believe in Giannis. And I think... You know, the the MVP award for whatever people are going to say about what it means, you know, and whether it's like a stupid award because it doesn't actually tell you who the best player in the league is. I don't really buy into that. Like, I think Giannis was the best player in the league this season during the regular season. It's a regular season award, and there was no better player during the regular season than Giannis. He was, I mean, he won Defensive Player of the Year, which I thought he also deserved, on top of just his extraordinary skill set which i think we saw like still has some holes in it he just brings it every single night at both ends he is i i think you know a singular physical force and yes there are things that playoff defenses can do to game plan against him yes he needs to round out his game so that that doesn't keep happening to him but the, you know, those holes in his game did not stop him from being one of the most efficient offensive players in the league, one of the best rebounders in the league, honestly, one of the better playmakers in the league, even though he's not necessarily an elite passer, just, you know, by virtue of being able to collapse any single defense makes him a good playmaker as a defender. Um, I mean, you know, whether he is playing out on the perimeter or playing inside in one-on-one coverage or as a helper. I do think that he is the best defender in the league. So I think it was a a wholeheartedly deserved award. And I think there are probably going to be more of them in his future. I mean, this is a guy who's 25 years old. He's now won two MVPs, a defensive player of the year, third guy in history after MJ and Hakeem to win both of those awards in the same season. And to me, you know, the best is yet to come. This is a worthy defensive player of the year. And that guy also averaged 29.5 points and 5.6 assists in 30 minutes per game on 55% shooting. The best defensive player in the league just put up the best PER season in NBA history. He did all that. He was that prolific while being the best player on the best team in basketball who for much of the season was on pace for 70 plus wins. And he did all that during the time frame of when this award is supposed to be judged upon. So open and shut case, really. He just had one of the best individual seasons ever for one of the better regular season teams ever, and it's a regular season award. In terms of people thinking the award you know, loses meaning uh, if a guy doesn't do as well in the playoffs, I don't buy into that either because like, if that's the case, then what like should finals MVP just become the new MVP? Cause like it ends up usually going to the best player who won the championship. Like, that just doesn't right. make sense. Like it, 
the the MVP can be on a team that doesn't end up winning or that falls short in the playoffs, and the two should not be correlated at all. In terms of the comments, Giannis should and will do what he wants, but I will say that it's at least interesting to think about the backdrop of him. He's saying, as long as everyone's on the same page about the priority only being winning a championship, he wants to be there long term. He says that and you think about the backdrop of, you know, the Brogdon situation that we've been talking about for a year now. And also, you know, him saying that in the same week that a report comes out that the Bucks feel Chris Paul is too rich for them. Um, it just makes you think. That's all. If you're a Bucks fan, I'd be discouraged. Yeah, I mean, uh, that was disappointing to hear that because, I mean, we were even just talking about this a couple of weeks ago, right? Like if... I think Chris Paul would be a great fit there. And if they could pull off a deal, like that's a guy who could absolutely take them over the top. If he plays at the level that he played at this season, because he gives them like, he would give them so much of what they need. Um, A half court playmaker, you know, a a fantastic isolation scorer, a a really great defender and somebody who just brings kind of a level of offensive organization and, game managing and basketball IQ that, you know, I don't think they totally have right now. And so, yeah, I mean, to, to hear that, like, he's too rich for their blood, like, what does that even mean? Because they would have to send out equivalent salary to pull him in anyway. And he has two years left on his deal. So one of those years is the years is, is the year that you need to convince Giannis to stick around. So you should be treating that as like, Literally, there should be no amount of money that you aren't willing to spend. Because if you lose Giannis, that's going to cost you more money than anything that you could spend like next season. You know what I'm saying? So it's like everything should be on the table. I just don't get it. Like the worst case scenario there is, okay, they get Chris Paul and Giannis leaves anyway. And then they're stuck with Chris Paul for one additional season. Who cares? They'll probably be able to offload him anyway. He'll be on an expiring contract and probably still be really good. Preaching to the choir, man. And, and just for context, the, the report comes from Eric Neem and Sham Sharanya at The Athletic. And Neem writes that sources with knowledge of ownership's thinking said, a deal for Paul is highly unlikely. The cost of bringing him aboard and the potential difficulty of bringing Paul onto a roster already led by a strong personality in Antetokounmpo seems to limit the chances of the Bucks moving to pair the stars. Yeah, because Giannis Antetokounmpo really seems like the kind of guy who would be against bringing on the strong personality of Chris Paul. Yeah. Or like Chris Paul really seems like the kind of guy who wouldn't get along with Giannis freaking Antetokounmpo at this stage of his career when he desperately wants to win a championship. Come on. What if- teammate has Giannis ever not gotten along with, man? No. All the guy does is go to bat for anybody in the organization. The guy went to bat for Jason Kidd. For- the guy is still loyal to Mike Budenholzer. <laughs> If that doesn't tell you this guy's loyal to a fault and you want me to believe that the reason you might want to not want to bring Chris Paul on is because you don't know if like his, the personalities might clash with Mignogna, it's like, get out of here. It's clearly financially motivated and that is quite frankly embarrassing for a team that is tr- at least claiming to be about winning titles and only winning titles right now to try to satisfy Giannis. You're either about it or you're not. But how can it be financially motivated if they would have to send out the matching salary anyway? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, to your point, maybe they're worried about getting stuck with Paul, you know, for the year after that. I don't know. I mean, who knows what their thinking is, but 
Yeah, like it wouldn't have it. Would, it wouldn't be exactly matching necessarily. Like they, right. it might still take them into the luxury tax. And I don't think they want any part of that. Even though they apparently in the meeting with Giannis, they told him they would go into the tax. But it's like if you're not if you're not going to go into the tax to bring on Chris Paul, who are you going into the tax for? That's also coming to Milwaukee. That's what I'm saying. And and so like just that that whole line of thinking doesn't make any sense to me. If the line of thinking was we don't want to go after Chris Paul because we don't want to give up anything real for a guy who's 35 and is like, you know, a Band-Aid solution and a quick fix and like we want something more long-term, fine. Then, I don't know, try and go after... I don't. They don't have the goods to get a Bradley Beal deal done. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know who else is like fits the category of like a younger player who can actually take them to the next level. But that would at least make some sense to me if that was the rationale. But like for financial reasons is like, again, take the long view here. If Giannis leaves, like that is millions upon millions of dollars is walking out the door with him. You know, you got to spend money to make money. It's guaranteed like multi-round playoff revenue every year out the window. Anyway, so congratulations to Giannis, like (laughs) well-deserved MVP and defensive player of the year. I'm rooting for him. I hope he comes back even better next season. And I hope he makes the right decision for himself and his career. Well and said. gets his ass away from that poverty franchise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it, given how few assets the Bucks have to play with to get themselves over the hump or to make a real tangible addition, you're not getting in the mix for like another star or in his prime. You're just not. So if you've got the ability to get Chris Paul, like the only thing that should come in the way of you getting Chris Paul would be if the Thunder deem your package of assets not good enough. Fair enough. You know, like we know that might be the case. Anything other than that, I don't even want to hear that they're like surveying the field for other trade partners that might emerge like with other stars. You're not getting anyone else. If you can get Chris Paul right now, you do it. That should be it. That's my way of saying... I also hope Giannis Antetokounmpo makes the best decision for himself and his family. And apologies to any Bucks fans that do listen. Nothing against you. No, uh, look, I'd be. I would love to see the Bucks succeed and win a championship. Like I want Giannis. I mean, to I don't succeed. know about that. I'm not a Milwaukee. Like I'm not a Bucks fan. I'm like, whoever saying, wins, like, wins. Not, if I'm not, I'm rooting for Giannis. And like, if his decision is to stay in Milwaukee, then I want to see the Bucks right. succeed. Is my point. But. The organization has to put him in a position to do that. And look, he bears a lot of responsibility too. Like that playoff flameout was on him as much as it was on anybody. But if they have a chance to improve the roster and decide not to do it for financial reasons, then that is 100% on ownership. And I think ultimately that's going to bite them in the ass in the long run, if that's the decision they decide to make. All right. Well, as uh, Wolf on walks away from the burning rubble behind him that is the bucks right now um i'll say i think that does it for a another episode of pound the rock the second and final episode of this week we'll be back with two more next week conference finals will be in uh, fuller swing and we might even you know if, if things really go sideways for the nuggets and celtics we could even be previewing the finals late next week so until then for joe wolfon i'm joseph Cacharo, pound the rock